Good morning, my relatives. This is Mark Charles. Today is uh, Tuesday, February 7th, and I am sitting down with my second cup of coffee. I'm very excited because today I'm going to be having a conversation with a good friend of mine, Michelle Faringo Warren, and uh, we're going to be talking about her book, Join the Resistance. Um, Michelle and I have been friends for a long time, and we can talk fairly easily, a lot of very common experiences, so I'm sure this will go very well. But uh, before I begin, I want to do as I always do, which is acknowledge I'm speaking to you from what's now um, called Washington, D.C., but these are the traditional lands of the Piscataway, and I want to honor the Piscataway as the host people of the land where I'm living. I want to thank the Piscataway for the stewardship of these lands, and I want to just state how humbled I am to be living on these lands today. So um, I've already had a fairly good morning. Um, this morning I, I woke up and actually last night before I went to bed, a friend of mine, um, actually a friend of Michelle's too, who's in town for some meetings, texted me and said he was in D.C. for some for uh, uh, some short meetings today. And I asked where he was staying and he literally was staying about a mile from my house. And so this morning, my good friend Rudy Carrasco and I uh, met together. Um, he flew in from the from the West Coast. So he was literally um, operating on just a few hours of sleep and a massive time change. But we got up, had breakfast and had a great time hanging out. And now I get to hang out with Michelle. And so it's like, this is just a very good relational day. So let me bring Michelle on as again, Michelle is the author of uh, two books. One we're talking today is called Join the Resistance. The other one she wrote is called The Power of Proximity. She lives in Denver, Colorado, where I used to live with my family, where I pastored a church for a number of years. And she has worked with the CCDA and many other organizations fighting for justice and social justice and addressing systemic issues and problems. And so I'm excited to introduce you to my friend, Michelle. So let me bring her on stage here. Michelle, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, anything you want to do to introduce yourself here? I just want to say good morning. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to talking. I'm on my second cup of coffee today, but I specifically chose my Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, you know, women belong in all places where decisions are being made coffee mug for our time today. Okay. So thanks for inviting me. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you, Michelle. Um, so Michelle and I have known each other for a number of years. I see Steve is on this morning. Mr. Phil Fox is here. Yacht A. Thank you, my brothers, for joining. Um, but and if, if you have throughout this interview, and we as Michelle and I talk, if you have questions you would like to pose to her, please feel free to put them in the chat. If you could preface it with the word question, so I'll know how to highlight it before um, I, I, I read as I kind of scan through them. But if you have a question for Michelle or about this conversation that we're having, please feel free to uh, add those questions into the chat. But one of the highlights of my relationship, I should say one of the turning points in my relationship with Michelle <laughs> was... It, it must have been summer, I think, of our early fall of 2019. And I had announced that I was running for president. And Michelle and I knew each other from her work at CCDA and my work on the board at CCDA. And we had done some things, a few things together. And I was flying into Denver. I don't remember what I was there for. I think I was there for an event for my book. But anyway, I was flying into Denver and I... Um, called her up and said, hey, do you want to have want to grab breakfast or something? And we <laughs> had time. So we got to the restaurant. And during as we sat down, she was checking her phone occasionally. And I was like, what's going on? And she said, well, I announced this morning I was running for Senate. <laughs> 
U.S. Senate. <laughs> Just U.S. Something. Senate from Colorado. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, Michelle, <laughs> what are you doing sitting here with me having breakfast? <laughs> are you not out in some <sighs> campaign event or doing something? Why, why do I get the honor of having the breakfast oh. with you the morning of your announcement that you're running? And um, anyway, so that experience of us both running for national office at the same time it created very much a kindred spirit between michelle and i um and that's not the only thing that we connect on as you'll see in this conversation michelle's work over the years to address systemic issue regarding marginalized communities is extensive and vast and um, she's written two books. The first book she wrote was about the power of proximity and the, the, the necessity of being in, in close proximity with the people that you are serving and working alongside. And then this book, which is her book of, uh, about uh, joining the resistance. And we'll get into the content of that a bit more first. But one of the questions I have for you, Michelle, I'd love just to have you share a few thoughts my audience has heard my experience of running for office. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I'd love to just have you share a few thoughts about what yeah. was it like running as someone who was largely like myself, politically unknown, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. running for a very public um, uh, office. You ran as a Democrat. So, I uh, ran as a Democrat. Yep. Mm-hmm. But share I'm some of your thoughts. Happy like, to what? share. I think it's funny. Okay, first of all, I want to at least affirm the word turning point. Because, you know, I felt like we had a nice relationship, we had worked together, but the reason it was such a turning point is unless you have run for office, you really don't understand what it is like to run for office. So let's start with that. The second thing is, is if you're going to do that bold of a decision to jump into the deepest end, and I would say that running for president is a little deeper than U.S. Senate, but it's pretty comparable. And you're like, I think I've got muscles, you know, I guess I'll just see if I'm going to drown or if I'm going to survive. You take breakfast with the other person who is working at building the muscles in that deep end of the pool. (laughs) Neither of us are people, we're neither of us are whimsical kinds of people that just, maybe we'll try something. It was calculated. It was, you know, it was such a big decision and it came from such a place of conviction. And so, of course, I was taking breakfast with you because nobody else would really understand even the fact that I was running as a Democrat. So partly is is as a chaplain person, as somebody in the church, in my community, I mean, I actually always have, I have, I've been very political only because we need to get stuff done, but I had never given my I guess, political allegiance to a party, but I knew that that I needed to do that in order to run. And so after 20, I think it was like 23 years as an unaffiliated voter, I became a Democrat six weeks before I jumped into the race because I didn't believe that the current Senator Cory Gardner deserved a seat. I was so upset. And it's not a, like I said, it wasn't a whimsical upsetness. I had worked with him in his office for nearly six years before that in the house in Colorado. And here was this guy who professed a Christian faith, who kept saying he cared about issues that pastors that I brought to his office that I cared about. You know, he would say that behind closed doors. And as soon as he stepped out, he lacked political courage. And that's not that unusual in politics. 
um, I usually say politicians are not the leaders you're hoping for. They are the waiters, W-A-I-T-E-R. They are waiting to see if it's a good idea for them to jump out that, you know, we are the leaders that give them the incentive to, you know, either defend themselves or join us in our fight for justice. But I had, he had said, I'm going to run as a senator because I'll have six years to do these things I really care about. And I watched him do nothing except cozy up to the Trump administration and try to, you know, get in Republican um, leadership and cared very little about Colorado, about the issues that were impacting our state. So that was one of the reasons I jumped in. The second reason, it was 2020, which is was the 100 year anniversary of women's suffrage. And in Colorado, we've never had a woman governor. We've had a, never had a woman U.S. senator. We've actually never had a mayor of Denver. And that really upset me in the sense that Colorado was the very first state in the country to afford women the right to vote 27 years before the federal government. So here we were leading the country in having people in our state assembly before anybody else affording women the right to vote. And then we had just, I don't know what happened in that 127 years, but I was like, we have never even been given an option to vote for a woman. And so I'm gonna do what I think I need to do and try to get one, the issues that are important to my community that wouldn't have otherwise been in the race. And that is the absolute truth. I'm not sure what would have been talked about, but the more I leaned in on issues of immigration, around poverty, injustice, um, mass incarceration, other people were like, oh, wow, she's getting applauded and people are standing, you know, and, and really enjoying that she cares about this. And then it became a race. How many people could talk about reparations? How many people could talk about immigration reform? So there was a, a lot of good reasons for me to be in it. Was in it for nine months, made the ballot, then got kicked off during COVID. It was a bummer. Yeah, COVID changed it for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, one other question for our a few other thoughts about this. So for me, running for office was a massive eye opener. I, and so there were a lot of things that came back. Of There were several things I'm like, wow, this really surprised me. I wasn't expecting this. I wasn't, you know... And there are other things where I was like, that was really effective. Like that was really kind of like I was. So there were several things I learned I was just deeply disappointed by about the experience and other things I was very pleasantly surprised. So if I, I know you have a ton of thoughts, what is one thing you were pleasantly surprised about from the experience of running? And what is one thing that you were deeply disappointed about? Not in how you did, but about the experience or about what you learned about that that trajectory that you felt was deeply disappointing? Yeah, I think I learned so much. I mean, best, boldest decision. And you and I, that should be the next book we write, right? Of what it's like to run for, for federal office, uh, you know, especially as a Christian, you know, with evangelical roots, because that is a whole other conversation. But what I was pleasantly surprised in was the deep level of caring in the grassroots. Um, you would talk to people and they were not very interested in party talking points. They had real issues with real needs and they came out. They came out. I did, I think it was 43 debates and forums in those nine months. And there were audiences, big audiences in the most remote places of Colorado. Colorado's huge, you know, huge. Yeah. 
you hours and hours and hours to get across it and traveling around. I was like, there's a lot of people of substance who haven't given up yet. And this is not really the thing I was most discouraged about, but what made me sad for them was their voices really were going unheard because caucus talking points seem to rule the day out, out of the state money rules the day. But my personal disappointment really was how little people of faith engaged. It wasn't politics. I see lots of people making comments on social media, but how they wouldn't get behind a candidate like me, um, you know, that they just didn't, they had never donated. I, I had received, I received a lot of money and I'm grateful for everyone who gave me money. But when I think about how many people I know in the state, I mean, thousands as an organizer, the only people who struggled giving me money were people from my faith tradition. And it wasn't even so much the party that I chose. It was just like, well, I've never given to that. And I was like, you know what, you get the government, you invest it. You know, this is supposed to be a republic and a democracy. You know, civic engagement is not some sideline sport. I mean, how do you you get angry at a system? You act like you're a victim to a system, yet you don't invest in it in any way. And you say, well, I tried because I voted. I'm like, voting is the lowest hanging fruit of civic engagement. You know, there's not enough people who vote, but if that's all you're doing, please don't pat yourself on the back. You know, that's easy. There are so many ways. So my disappointment was just how people, especially even Christians that make these rally cries for justice and, you know, bemoan systemic injustice. And I'm just like, you're not investing in anything. Like you really need to do stuff. It's time to go from the sidelines. You don't have to be me. Don't jump in a U.S. Senate candidate, but could you give me some money? You know, could you introduce me to your friends? I mean, I'm not even talking about stuff that would benefit me. I'm not even putting in policies that would help me except for shared liberation. So it does benefit me, but not directly. Yeah. Michelle, I, again, we could go off. If anyone wants to have a very um, interesting uh, kind of forum on running for office, uh, Michelle and I would make a great a great pair to have around at a round table or something. Anyway, I could we could I'm sure we could talk a lot more about that, but I really want to get into your book. Okay. And um, as I was reading through this book. And for people who have seen me when I travel and when I speak, especially when I did the book tour and now I do it more, I actually carry a, a, a number of books with me. Um, people, books that have influenced my thinking or have uh, given me insights into stuff I talk about. And I always uh, try to highlight those books during my presentations. And afterwards, when I'm signing books at the back or I'm answering questions or engaging with people, I leave my books at the front of near the podium. And I tell people, if you want to come up and look at these books or take a picture of them so you can buy them later, like this is, these are all books that you should be aware of. I have Sunshan Ra's Prophetic Lament. Mm -hmm. I have Sarah Augustine's um, uh, the, the Land is Not Empty. I have several books on um, that I have up there. And I'm, I'm going to start sharing your book. Thank you. And I'm going to start using it as a, a point of reference for people. Obviously, your book came out after mine, so it's not like I quoted your book or anything in, in, our, in the work I'm doing. But I, even in the first chapter, how you start this book, you basically you don't say it directly, but through the story you tell and through the way that you bring it in, you're basically saying this is a primer for white people 
who don't know how to get engaged mm -hmm. and they think they're helping and many ways they're not. And so I was really deeply impressed, first of all, just by your first story in chapter one mm. of like how you kind of just introduced that theme. And, and then I saw as you went throughout the book, how you kept telling these stories and coming back at different times about how, yeah, we ran across this and they thought this was helpful, but it wasn't. And there, and part of it was your own learning too, right? I mean, you, you tell, tell your own story of how you kind of got into involved with activism and so I think because I always get a lot of questions from white people of like, where do I go? How do I start? What's the best way? And I think your book is going to be a great reference to give to people as a white woman talking to white people saying, hey, let me tell you um, your place in this in this space. Um, so, yeah, was that uh, I mean, how much of that was intentional? How much of that is just what came out? And like, was that like your one of your major theses in the book that you wanted to bring that out? Or I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, 100 um, yeah, percent. So I right out of college, I was a teacher for a few years. And I often say once a teacher, always a teacher, which is means if you ask me a question, my answers are long because I'm not trying to answer your question. I'm trying to teach you and explain to you what I mean. But in this particular book, I am always have teaching in my mind, like how can I equip? How can I, you know, help people learn, not just from me, because obviously there's so many more stories than just mine, but what is, you know, what is the thesis, thesis what is needed in this moment? You know, when I wrote The Power of Proximity, I wanted the audience, you know, and I was writing mostly to white millennials at that time who had, you know, kind of been awakening to social justice. And I wanted them to understand you can't fix a problem you don't understand, but you're never going to understand it unless you lean in and become proximate. So I had this mindset of, oh, I'm going to write this really not cute series, but really kind of hinged. It's going to be the power of proximity, the power of resistance, the power of peace. And I think I waited. I remember telling IVP I was going to, they asked me when I was going to write that second book. I'm like, well, I'm running for U.S. Senate. Do you want it before or after? And they said after. And I didn't know I'd last that long. But I, when I wrote the book, I had to switch it to join the resistance instead of the power of resistance because of what I was seeing around George Floyd. That was a huge awakening. The intersectionality that landed people, not just in streets in the United States, but all over the world, I was watching people finally kind of wake up to the fact that they needed to use their body, they needed to use their voice, that it wasn't just enough to make comments or put like black circles on their social media. Like there was there was change could happen, you know, if we all came together. But how can we really understand the posture for people who look like me? You know, people who are white, people who come from an educated, privileged background where the system was actually written for me and to benefit me as a woman. I mean, I have a lot to say about that, but I'll just say on the big picture of, you know, whiteness that it was where it, it was where, you know, it was written for me. So all to say, I really wanted to make sure that people understood right away, like people, we are waiting for you to join us. We are not waiting for you to make it about you. And so I wanted it to be as practical as possible. I almost, the subtitle is called um, Step Into the Good Work of Kingdom Justice. And while I put that there because it's not, you don't fall into the work of restoration and repair. You actually have to make an intentional step into it and there's sacrifice and, you know, there's rejection and there's, you know, a lot of different things that come. But I wanted, originally I was like, I want to write it to say a practitioner's guide 
to the work of faith-rooted activism. But my husband insightfully said, yeah, but if I saw that, I would think, oh, if I'm not a practitioner, I shouldn't read it. So I wanted people who were waking up to injustice to understand the steps of how to engage the work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I appreciated some of the very practical things you talked about, even just the point of like, this is how you march. You join a march and not, you know, not make it about you, but actually join the, the, the power of the collective voice that's happening in the march. And, you know, I mean, I, I, yeah, I could go off on this, my own stories of how mm -hmm. I've experienced that getting sidetracked, not only, but so I, I appreciated the way that you brought that into the book. Um, you end the book where you talk about joy mm -hmm. and you talk about how there are several points in the journey of your work where you've lost your joy or you're on the verge of losing your joy and you really highlight how important it is to to maintain your joy in and even you even talk about how to how to cling on to the hope that if you've lost hope how to cling on to the hope of other people mm -hmm. who um you know talk a little bit more about that tell yeah. me a little bit more about the i mean it's in the book but i'd like you to share a little more about the 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 thrust or the importance of it's your last chapter right why mm -hmm. was joy your last chapter yeah well, to answer that question, I'll just share with the audience that the book is broken up into three sections. And the and so I, the steps are, how do you join the resistance? One, you serve the movement. And so in those first few chapters, I really want us to become students of the resistance, to understand our place and what service really looks like. The second piece, which I find still perpetually hard, and I would be curious about what you think is the second part, which is stay at the table. And that resilience and understanding that you stay even when you lose, you stay even when you're criticized, you stay even when your own team wonders, why are you even here? We don't need you. You know, those kinds of push pushbacks. So you stay yeah. at the table. And that third section, was probably one of the hardest. I'm gonna tell you, it, I still can't read. I haven't read chapter seven in a while, but it's because it's too painful. I still can't get through chapter seven. I'm almost ready to cry again, you know, without crying because it is, I wrote this book as vulnerable as I did the first, you know, how can I be as honest about my own struggles and my own need to walk towards um, the brokenness that we see. And when you are privileged, Mark, it means your your willingness to look at it, you know, to see the evil, to hear the evil, to bravely speak, you know, the evil. It's it's optional in the sense that my life really doesn't change no matter who's in office. That's very sobering. Maybe yeah. I'll pay a little bit more taxes. Maybe I won't. And I'm not talking about my individual personal life because I've made different decisions. But when I think about, like I said, that system that was created for me, an election really doesn't have a big impact on it, but it is literally life or death for my neighbors, for my community, for my friends. And so that's a shared piece. But I I know that that third element of doing this work is helping your people. And that chapter seven is you can't is is called rooted in love. 
Then the next chapter is rooted in peace and the final is rooted in joy. And I, I, I am going to answer the joy piece, but it is, you cannot help a people you do not love. And it is hard to love mercy and love forgiveness and love the people that are calling you a socialist and a leftist liberal. And, you know, I, I, as a woman, especially, you know, in evangelical circles, there's always a lot of conflict with the idea of my voice and my body and my, my gender, even weighing in my husband, you know, he can have the exact same thoughts and he's a good thinker. And I'm a flaming liberal, you know, so there's just a lot to that that I've had to resist in my own resistance of just trying to use my voice. So, you know, the natural thing is for me to run and not want to help my people, not to love them, to write them off, to think they're too far gone. But they're the problem. And I'm indigenous to them. And so I have to keep loving them. And so. I share a little bit of that just to say that the work is long. It's a good work and it is a hopeful work if lived by faith. Hope is setting a vision of what can be. We join, you know, the Hebrews 11 chorus of living it by faith, even if we don't get what we hoped for in this life, you know, with the belief that it will come. But that last chapter rooted in joy is I lost my joy. You know, after the Trump administration and I live in a, my community is 86% Latino. And so you're just, doing so much protection and defense work after 2017's inauguration as a white woman from evangelical roots. I'm like, my people did this. And so the grief and the despair, and initially we were just moving as fast as we possibly could to try to do, like I said, protection and defense work because anyone in need of mercy was in trouble. And um, yeah, after a couple of years, I was like, wow, this is, I was exhausted. Um, I was run down. I was grieved. And I was still doing the work, um, quite, quite busy, probably too busy, <laughs> um, but doing that work. And I lost my joy and I knew I had lost it. And I remember talking to some of our common friends saying, I've lost my joy. And and they came out like, oh, Michelle, don't be so hard on yourself. It's been such a hard season. You know, you're, you know, you're being pulled in every direction. Your kids have all gone to college. You know, like there's things that are happening in your life that would explain it. I'm like, no, 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 no. I was like, joy is a fruit of the spirit. And I understand sadness and grief and lament, but, and I understand momentary lapses, but if joy is a fruit of the spirit, then I should be able to tap into that regardless. And so, so I share a little bit about the story and just the reality that I realized, you know, I'm just too immature. Like I don't have deep enough roots and I'm certainly not an immature person. I'm a really seasoned person after 30 years, you know, of living and working and worshiping in a community that is literally defined by economic and racial injustice. You know, that is very real and that is very present but roots grow deep and the strongest trees have the deepest roots so that driest times you can still have that well. And, you know, it's sort of that image of Psalms one, you know, that the tree that's planted by waters, you know, and so how could I, how could I grow even more mature roots to, to find that water? And yeah, so I have some really powerful stories of even when all of a sudden it came back and I was at a brink, um, but the joy of God really was my strength. Well, Michelle, I I really appreciate you writing this book. I really appreciate you uh, you sharing it. You, I put a link in the chat earlier. You can buy it on Amazon. Um, there's a Kindle, there's an Audible, and there's the paperback version. Um, I I highly recommend this book. I think it's a great dialogue. One of the things. So one of the things about Michelle 
she has this whole life that she lives in her home community that I never see because I only know Michelle in the national spaces we've connected, running for office and working with CCDA and doing other things like that. And so one of Michelle's hats that she wears is she's been a worship leader for a very long time. I'm I'm not a worship leader, but I've been involved with the worship dialogue for a number of years through my partnership with John Whitvliet and the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship. In fact, I'm headed out there tomorrow for the symposium. Um, and in in your book, you mention your worship leader roots several times. And I was as I was reading through it, you know, I was both reading it and listening to it on Audible. And as I was reading through it, I kept noticing in every chapter there was this QR code in every chapter. And I, I, I didn't have my phone. I just wasn't clicking on it. And then, so today I'm like, well, let me see what these QR codes are. I'm like, is it a free coupon or something? Like, well, <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I brought up some of the links and I'm like, they're worship songs. Like the, you're literally linking to YouTube videos mm-hmm. of songs that come from the community mm-hmm. of the pain that you're describing within the, within the chapter. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I've never, this is the first time I've seen that in a book and I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know if other people do it or not, but I thought that's <laughs> genius. I mean, that's <laughs> genius. And so, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think I'm going to definitely recommend your book and you to the worship symposium. I, I think you. because of the way that you you found how to use technology to even bring the song, I mean, you share the lyrics at several points and you have, I mean, you have that in there, but mm-hmm. then to share, because who doesn't have a phone, right? I mean, we all have a phone. Right. And so who, to be able to click on that, bring it up and then hear that music while you're just finished reading it, that's powerful. Yeah. And I, and I'm, I mean, how did you, when you suggested that to the publisher, did you get pushback on that? Or have you got feedback from people who read the book and have said something about it? What's, what's kind I love, of been- I love that that's evoking such a great response. It's so natural for me because you're right. I know at, nationally, I've never even really brought that, except if you've done marches with me, then yeah. you'll know because we sing because singing is a part of the work of resistance. It is singing your hope. I I talk about James Forbes and what he shared at a course that I was helping um, facilitate at Duke Divinity School, where he talks about how when he was singing, we shall overcome. It's like, you know, there there was fire hoses and there were dogs and he's like, anything but overcoming is what you saw. But when we sang that song together, it was as though we deposited a vitamin in our soul for the movement. And that is so powerful because that's what music really does. And it is yeah. it is transformative. It helps you sing forth what you hope for. And as somebody who has led worship for decades, and it's one of my favorite things to do. I don't do it as much as I used to, not because... I mean, I've just, other people have been raised up and I'm happy to join them. And, you know, every once in a while, you'll see me to do it probably less than 10 times a year now. But it was what I did for years and years and years and years, decades, yeah. really. And hard things would be happening in the community, in our congregation, in people's lives. I did more funerals than I ever did anything else besides Sunday services. 
And Christians are weird people. Like you sing at funerals. Like, why are you singing? It's because you're singing because this is your story. This is your song. You're praising your savior all the day long. You know, this is just a part of the testimony of being a remnant left behind waiting for something to be fulfilled. And so it was very natural for me to incorporate music. I don't think my editor ever even thought I shouldn't. It was, there was no conversation about it. It was like, okay, that's that's another part of her story, you know, and I just wanted to end every chapter with it because it is a hopeful, rooted in joy decision yeah. in the midst of the work. And so it's actually, I mean, there, I would say, yes, in the broad sense, it's worship music, but, but not in the current sense. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, I, I should have said that wrong. It's not yeah, worship it's, music. It's song, the message being sung. Yes, it was songs. It was periodic, periodic songs of the struggle. And so just and I talk about the origins of the songs and what was happening, because the reality is people who have become very well known or even people who are obscure and remain obscure, we all work together for shared liberation. And whether you're known or you're not known, you're a part of that collective work of resistance. And so I I just know there's so many people that did the work and didn't, they were just regular, normal people that did, weren't looking for huge platforms. They weren't looking, they were just being faithful to steward what was in front of them. And one step after another step after another step led to great transformation for communities, for states, for our country. I mean, I don't have a whole lot of hope in politics, but I do have hope that people will catch the vision and the power of their voices and the collective voices. This is not, a, it shouldn't be a competing work. It should be a collective work. And I think song right. enables us to practice that collectivism um, indirectly and then it, we can bring it to to that to the shared work. So yeah, I love music, and I think I learned I learned a lot through the power of song. And I I think I shared this with you, but and I probably if I not I need to find it. But I actually created a Spotify playlist called Join the Resistance. I, ha I have that in the chat. I'm adding okay, it right so, now. So there was only nine songs that I highlighted because I did one in each chapter. But this was the list I was going from. And so when I was writing the first draft of the book, I wasn't even sure what was going to make it because you know that you're just sort of throwing stuff yeah. down. So that is that is um, a few a few songs whose history I wish I could have written about um, because they didn't make the cut. Um, but but anyway, so yeah, so that's that that's the list I would get you know really excited about. And I think the one song that really got me still to this day is "Stand Up," and it's a, a more recent song that was that was written and sung in the movie about Harriet Tubman called Harriet. Beautiful, wow. amazing, powerful. Yeah. I, so yeah, I'll have to warn people when you buy the book and the, a few of the QR codes, the YouTube videos are no longer there, but they're, Michelle's going to check with the publisher yeah, about check if they can edit the QR code and get a different, a different, um, link to that song up there. But the Spotify playlist I just put into, uh, the chat. So if you want to hear the playlist that Michelle had when she was writing this book, uh, you can get that. But um, yeah, I, I, I love the fact that she did that. I thought that was a really, really unique way to, to do this. Um, you know, Michelle, we could talk for hours. And <laughs> yeah, the third and fourth already, cup of coffees. Yeah. <laughs> we've already gone uh, almost 45 minutes here, so wow. I don't want to keep yeah. people too long. But uh, 
yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful uh, for you taking some time. Yeah, thank um, you. Mark. What kind of feedback have you gotten from the book so far? Have you have what what kind of response have you gotten from people? Yeah, I think a lot of it is sort of jaw dropping. <laughs> you know, they're just like, wow, you know, thanks for saying things that should be said. I've done a I've done, I think, <clears throat> I think this is probably I don't know, 25, 30 hours of podcasts, lots and lots of articles. So I think the book's still just getting out there. It's only been a few months that yeah. it launched and we had Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, I'm receiving a lot of good feedback, but at the same time, it's such a new book. I don't know. I mean, I'll learn yeah, more cool. as we go and I'm grateful for you and your willingness to have me on to share about it. But um, yeah, I, I, as we head into sort of that 60th anniversary of MLK's letter from a Birmingham jail, I can't stop thinking about that. And, you know, I've written to CT and a couple other places because I think that my hope for this book is that we will have white Christian moderates no more. Um, that I think we need to stop memorialize, memorializing um, quotes and instead, you know, honor the legacy and join it, the work. So, yeah. yeah. Well, well I'm putting the link in again for if you want to purchase the book, it's on Amazon. Um, I'm also going to put a link to your website on here um, regarding the work that you're doing. And Thank so um, if you want to learn more about Michelle and not just the book she wrote, but the work she's doing, you can find that there. And um, for people who are who follow my second cup of coffee, um, something that we've been doing here is we've actually been um, building out our podcast. And so we're now delivering this not only as a live YouTube stream and Facebook stream, but uh, we're putting the audio for each of these up on, on some podcast sites. So I'm sharing the primary site we have it on right now, which is Anchor. Um, it's also on Spotify, and I think it's also on Google now. We've submitted to that. I think it just came out on Google Podcasts a couple of days ago. But um, anyway, so if you if you want to, don't want to watch the video, but you want to download it and play it in the car or something when you're just listening to your headphones, you can now get my second cup of coffee as a podcast. Um, so that's out there. But uh, it's this has been a really good conversation. Um, I may we're going to see that I I'll go through the the chat a little bit later and pull out any questions we have and we may see if we can bring Michelle back later to, to answer some questions or um, uh, to engage with that. But Michelle, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank it's you. It's fun to share a cup of coffee with you across the continent. Um, I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Actually, before we go off, you told me before we started about one thing you're doing in Oxford. Oh, yeah. Regarding yeah. the history of your own state. And mm -hmm. I would be amiss if I didn't give you a chance to talk about that. Yeah. So why don't you just share for a moment about the work you're going to, what you're going to be doing and what you're going to be presenting on it. Because that was really exciting when you told me about it. Yeah. You know, I, I'm grateful for the opportunity. I get to work with the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, who is uh, coordinating some global leaders around Christian nationalism and what are we going to do with regard to the church? And it's a global dialogue. And I just thought, what am I going to bring to this conversation? And honestly, Mark, as a result of your um, 
teaching and leadership, even an influence in my own life, I have thought about um, indigenous communities in ways that I otherwise just wouldn't have because the history has just been erased. But in Colorado, we have a very notorious massacre, the Sand Creek Massacre, that was led um, during Abraham Lincoln. And it really um, was led by Colonel Shivington, who was, I mean, some of the monikers he's known for is being racist, power hungry, um, and that he had senatorial and presidential ambitions. And that's half the reason, um, a lot of the reason actually, that he um, led that Sand Creek Massacre was to put his own name forward and try to get power and his thirst for power. That's not a terribly surprising narrative, except the other thing that he was known for, in addition to being a colonel in the U.S. Army, was that he was a Methodist preacher. And after the massacre and a lot of the hearings in Congress, he had to step down, but he became the person who was in charge of the Colorado Methodist Church. And so Christian nationalism and just manifest destiny and so many of the things that you talk about it's just really important for us to continue to share those stories. So I actually brought these two books because I'm going to be using some of the part of your book in it. And then um, the massacre at Sand Creek and the subtitles, how Methodists were involved in an American tragedy. So, yeah, so I'm going to be bringing, you know, my perspective really mostly from the grassroots, how Christian nationalism literally murders the most vulnerable and makes them targets. And so I'll, I'll start with that story and kind of move into present day. But I think it's really important, especially as Christians consider it, that this is not a Twitter game, that people are dying and that we need to really ask ourselves, how are we going to um, allow history not to be repeated in our lifetime? And how are we going to force the hand that it, that's writing it so that the story is told differently? Yeah. Well, Michelle, thank you so much. I, I'm I, glad I remembered before we, we ended to give you a chance to talk about that because I think that's some important things. And Colorado has been doing a better job than most states of wrestling mm -hmm. with its own history. Mm -hmm. um, the, the state has actually acknowledged the Sand Creek Massacre. Um, the state has actually abolished abortion or abolished uh, slavery. They took mm -hmm. it out of the out mm -hmm. of the uh, the amendment out mm -hmm. of or the clause out of their amendment in their in your constitution. And so your state, the state of Colorado, has been working very hard to address some of these at a more systemic level. Mm -hmm. And I'm very glad that people like yourself are actually working to elevate that history and to bring those stories out in the spheres of influence that you have. So thank you for doing that. It's, I'm, and I'm glad, I'm thrilled to hear that my book influenced. Yeah. Uh, that Sing Chan and Maya's book influenced you in that journey. That's okay. It was mostly your friendship. Okay. Your book was of course. Yeah. But I mean, like really come on, think of the hours that we've yeah. listened to each other and we've traveled and been at similar conferences. And now yeah. I'm really grateful. Mark, keep, keep doing what you're doing. I learned a lot and I'm grateful. It's a, it is a collective course and, you know, we need to figure out how we can support the work of reversing systemic injustice so that everyone can flourish. Yeah. Well, thank you, Michelle, for joining me. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this second cup of coffee. I hope your cup is just as good as mine has been. Um, uh, as always, our prayers continue to be for those who are struggling. We acknowledge we have Black History Month going on. There is this horrific earthquake in Syria um, that has claimed now I think the number is up to 5,000 lives that have been lost in Turkey and Syria from this earthquake. 
um, and of course the war in Ukraine. So our prayers go out for all of those people. Um, and my prayer continues to be that we'll walk in beauty and that we'll learn how to walk in beauty together. So, my relatives, hakonet.